How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. What does tobacco have in common with fossil fuels? Author and Caltech historian Eric Conway says energy companies have borrowed a page from the tobacco companies and created doubt about scientific evidence that burning fossil fuels is heating the Earth's atmosphere. What's his evidence? And how is this affecting the politics of trying to pass a national energy and climate bill? We'll discuss that and much more with our live audience here in San Francisco. Now, please welcome Eric Conway to Climate One. Thank you. Eric, welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's start in the beginning, as it were, in the, the early days of the Cold War, and there were some atomic scientists, and that they got connected with tobacco. So tell us how that, that came about. Well, the, our story really begins around um, a very senior American physicist by the name of Fred Seitz, who retires and decides to go to work um, for the tobacco industry running their research program. Um, in 1979. So this is sort of the second generation coming into the tobacco story. The tobacco industry had started creating experts um, to and generating research and so forth, intended to help cast doubt on the idea that smoking caused cancer. Um, Fred Seitz joins up with them in 1979 to help this effort out. Um, And our story then expands pretty quickly when he helps form another set of scientists, Bill Nirenberg, Robert Jastrow, um, to found the George C. Marshall Institute, um, an organization that initially is designed to defend President Reagan's strategic defense initiative um, from attack by the Union of Concerned Scientists, um, a huge body of the nation's physicists, um, and probably the most loudmouthed of them all, Carl Sagan. And that's sort of how our story begins, getting from tobacco to the Strategic Defense Initiative. And, and but what united them? What, what, is there an underlying ideology or, or, or worldview that, that made those natural uh, allies? Or, or... Yeah, the argument we develop in the book is that what brings them together is precisely their Cold War. They're all Cold Warriors. They were devoted to the defense of freedom and of free markets um, from the expansion of Soviet communism. And that included in the United States internal Cold War politics, the defense of the United States from internal aggressors. So some of those internal aggressors, of course, were actual communist spies, but a great many of Cold Warriors saw environmentalists often, not universally, but often as at best Soviet dupes and in often simply in league with them. And that driving ideology, we think, is why eventually they come to misrepresent science of ozone depletion and acid rain and, and global warming. It's the, an extension of Cold War politics into the domestic sphere. So the greenies or pinkos, is that? Yeah, watermelons is the term we use, green on the outside, red on the inside. You can see that kind of language used in columns by, for example, George Will. Green tree with red roots is the word was his phrase. And you also talk about during World War II, the federal government got involved in R and D in a big way, and that had a role. So tell us about how federal role in, in research and development played into this. Prior to the Second World War, the federal government funded very little scientific research. The majority science was a much smaller enterprise, and the majority of the funding came from private foundations, um, such as the Rockefeller Foundation. During the war, the United States spent enormous amounts of money developing microwave technologies and improving airplane technologies and uh, developing the basic technologies of digital computing come out of the Second World War. And after the war, there's a lot of advocacy by physicists, primarily, to make that science state permanent. Um, And so during the 1950s, the National Science Foundation is established. At the end of the 50s, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration is founded. The National Institutes of Health gets set up. And that produces federal funding for science on a scale that no one had ever seen before. And anything that's publicly funded can be made controversial. 
one thing the government starts to do is it starts to pay scientists to look into the damage produced by industry, um, air and water pollution and environmental health problems and so on, which, of course, businesses don't want people to be thinking about and doing. And so as a counterreaction to this, you see set up in the 70s private foundations whose job becomes contesting environmental science. And Rachel Carson, we kind of skipped over that, that area. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and what can the experience of Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring, uh, tell us about what, what happened subsequently? Uh, Carson's Silent Spring um, came under attack very quickly from the chemical industry. Um, but at the same time, the President's Science Advisory Committee essentially wrote, a, which is a, wrote what has got, probably got to be the highest profile book review pretty much ever, wrote a book review of Silent Spring for President Kennedy um, to say, to conclude that, yes, basically, she had the science of DDT and dialdrin and its metabolites, DDE, um, basically correct from the knowledge that existed in 1960, in the early 1960s when she's writing. And over a space of about 10 years, there's internal arguments in administrations that come and go, the Johnson administration, and finally it's banned in the Nixon administration. Um, banned in the United States, and I keep having to emphasize this, um, even to my colleague Naomi, banned in the United States because one of the, me- one of the MEMS generated after this um, in the 2000s now, decades after it's banned in the U.S., is that the banning of DDT resulted in the deaths of millions of Africans from malaria, and thus Rachel Carson is one of the greatest mass murderers of all time. You can see this stuff published in a number of places. Well, Michael Crichton uh, gave a talk here at the Commonwealth Club, pretty Mm -hmm. much putting that forward Mm -hmm. before he wrote State of Fear. Yep. But the reality is that DDT is still in use in in about 16 countries, the last I looked. It's used differently. It's not used in large-scale spraying campaigns because large-scale spraying of any pesticide causes the evolution of insect-resistant to that pesticide. So it's counterproductive in the long term to do it that way. So instead, it's sprayed on the insides of doors and windows and so forth and is used largely as an insect repellent now. But... This mem that Rachel Carson is a mass murderer has spread, um, been spread by the right-wing media establishment in the United States um, as a way to demonize environmentalism and environmental science and all the people who do that kind of thing. Um, it's, a real, to my mind, a really disgraceful episode in, in the American media, but that's, that's part of our story because we needed to get at this idea of how these kinds of ideas spread and become so pernicious. So out of this Cold War era grow the tobacco people, companies spreading doubt about whether tobacco causes cancer or not. Uh, it seems to be very effective. It, it buys some, some time. Many decades. <laughs> and until there's this big settlement, it may be, yeah, um, and then climate change in the 70s comes onto the scene, and the climate change people connect the dots for us between climate and tobacco. Well, the, the, the dots get connected through this George C. Marshall Institute that I, I, I talked a little bit about. The Marshall Institute's never been very active in tobacco, but remember I said it was set up by Fred Seitz, who was, by, partly by Fred Seitz, who was involved in it. Um, in the 1990s, the Marshall Institute decides to make its main issues the effort to cast doubt on global warming. Other foundations, though, are set up, again, during a lot of them during the 70s, who take up who continued the defense of tobacco of secondhand smoke in the 1990s, and, um, but who, for some reason, that we don't have the internal records to prove. For example, the Heartland Institute has become very active in denying both the health effects of smoking and the severity of global warming. And these foundations mix money from many, many different kinds of companies. So Heartland Institute, which is Chicago, receives money from tobacco companies, it receives money from oil companies, but it's one really powerful, actually, both media machine and political machine. They have a thing they call a blast fax. Whenever they want to get out an issue, they have fax machines that go to thousands and thousands of federal and state legislators, so they can simply bombard them with their message. So you mentioned the funders. Let's let's um, you know who are the key funders. What's what's in it for them? Are they, is is it ideologically driven? Is it profit or business driven? Or is it what are the drivers? Um, the answer is all of the above. The Marshall Institute is kind of interesting. Interesting when Seitz and Robert Jastrow set it up, they initially decided they weren't going to take corporate money. 
they set it up using um, money from political foundations, the Scafee Foundation, Coors Family. Um, and for about the first 10 years, that's what they took. They, they really believed that corporate money would somehow contaminate them. So they wouldn't take it. But the other foundations, the Heartland Institute, the Heritage Foundation, um, and the American Enterprise Institute, Cato, take both the political foundation money and corporate money. Um, and again, the idea isn't just to contest specific issues anymore. One of the strategies that tobacco companies decide to pursue in the early 1990s is the undermining of science broadly. So they begin to use their PR apparatus not just to undermine the science of tobacco and cancer and health effects, but the tobacco industry explicitly decides to set up, um, well, through their own marketing companies, a website called junkscience.com, which attacks all regulatory sciences pretty much universally. and that strategy uh, is really one of the motivations for the book because we, we wondered what effect will this have on science when it's being under a continuous, um, what amounts to a continuous corporate assault, especially in a society that's very dependent on that science and engineering. It's a fascinating and to us a disturbing story. But science is also responsible for a great deal of innovation and progress. So why is science threatening to corporations, many of which that you say actually conduct scientific basic research that does great stuff and it does very good science inside some of these corporations? Uh, one of the things that – one distinction you have to make about science is there are sciences of production, like chemistry, physics, that are aimed at – improving industrial production, finding new resources, and so on. Then there is these other environmental sciences. Sometimes they're called impact sciences that study the impact of these processes and that are those, and those sciences are the ones that are threatening to companies who don't want to be, have to spend more money on oil rig safety or the safety or, and the, or the, the leakage cleaning from up oil, spills, oil yeah. refineries and so on. Um, and that that distinction is kind of the problem because the general public don't make it. You know, when someone's attacking climate science, that time tends to reflect them as an attack on all sciences because the public doesn't really make a distinction between this kind of science and that kind of science. So it's just a sort of big enterprise. So I think that science suffers overall when the environmental and impact sciences come under attack. But you're quite right. There are a great many companies that are very dependent on science. And it, it's, we wonder what they really think in boardrooms um, when, on the one hand, their PR machinery is attacking scientists. On the other hand, their human resources departments are trying to hire scientists. And, and how about oil companies? What kind of science do they do? Oh, they do tremendous amounts of geology. Um, the ability... The, the ability to find oil and natural gas um, is, has advanced tremendously, um, almost entirely on private funding. Um, it involves studies of microfossils, of all things, one of the things that I, I doubt anyone saw such an enormous use for 100 years ago. But they've invested enormously in that and, um, and in computing technologies to help in artificial decision-making, intelligence decision-making systems and so on to help them do this. So the oil companies are actually major players in certain sciences, in petrogeology and, and in petrochemicals. I mean, what they do in refineries is, is, as a matter of chemical engineering is really is fascinating if you're interested in, in that kind of thing. But they spend enormous amounts of money on science, but different kinds of science. Again, not the science of studying the impacts of what they do, but but to facilitate production, making it more efficient, reliable, and so on. We might mention that your actual background is in uh, mechanical engineering and geology. Did yeah, I get mechanical that right? engineering and geology, and Naomi actually was, Naomi, my co-author, actually was a field geologist working for mining companies before going back to school to become a historian of science. And on the role of oil companies, you mentioned that they do some very fant- some excellent science. Mm-hmm. What's their political role? Is there a spectrum of oil, energy companies, oil and coal companies the, in this story? Oh, yes. Um, until about six weeks ago, I'd have said British Petroleum was on the progressive ends of things. They supported – they had actually had bought a number of green energy sorts of firms, wind energy. Um, they – seem to be investing pretty heavily in that sort of thing. They, they were not part of the political opposition to getting serious about dealing with climate change. Uh, the opposite end was ExxonMobil and, and the Koch industry, uh, family industries, who have been major funders of the denial campaign. So, in fact, 
even within the corporate world, there's a separation, um, a spectrum of companies that are very involved on one side, very involved on the other. And I suspect, though, of course, they're difficult to identify, a bunch that are sort of in the middle and just laying low to see what happens. What exactly did ExxonMobil do? They helped finance a number of the foundations that uh, we talk about to some extent. Again, though, our book really focuses on scientists, our key sets of physicists, and we don't actually spend a lot of time detailing who exactly was funding what. Other people have kind of done that. Greenpeace had a big report, for example, recently on who funds this network. To us, that wasn't an interesting question. We don't think that the scientists that we study were really in this for the money. They were working for the, the tobacco industry to defend Star Wars, to prevent acid rain and global warming regulation, um, for political ideology, to defend their market fundamentalism, their political beliefs, not because they were in the pay of big money. And one of those groups, I believe, is, is it the Heartland Institute, has an annual gathering of a number of scientists in Chicago, and they run ads in the papers, et cetera, saying, you know, these are scientists that don't believe in what some people might call the, the scientific consensus, right? Mm-hmm. And that science is full of, uh, scientific history is full of people who've been ostracized for their, for their uh, unconventional views that then are proven to be correct, right? Um, yeah, that's kind of the Galileo story. Some of those folks actually believe it. Um, but the reality is most of the people who are outliers in science turn out to be wrong, not right. Uh, I mean, that's... And one, of the, one very famous historian of science, Thomas Kuhn, talks about this in the, in the guise of Joseph Priestley, who absolutely adamantly refused to accept the reality of oxygen long after everyone else had done. And Kuhn's argument was that people who cannot change their minds when the evidence changes are no longer acting as scientists. So this, what's the impact of this, this gathering? These are people you think that they actually, they're not in it for the money. They actually you know, have their different facts. They have their different, different worldview. And they have this big gathering uh, once a year. Mm-hmm. And, and what is the impact of that? I don't think the impact, has been, the impact has been in public relations, not on science. Because they're ignored by actual climate scientists. The reality is the number of climate scientists who actually go to that is very small. I know of one who's a regular attender. Um, otherwise, they're ignored in science. But, and I have to say that I was looking for reporting on that conference this year. I saw their ad. I saw eventually one wrap-up article. I think it was actually in, in, in a British newspaper but almost nothing otherwise. I think they, were, they are finally being ignored, which is what should happen <laughs> when you're, you've got a group of people who are flying in the face of all the evidence that we have. Eric Conway is a Caltech historian and co-author of Merchants of Doubt. We're discussing the history of science and climate change at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, who are, we've talked about some of the, the villains. Let's talk about you know, the villains and heroes in, in this story. Let's start with the heroes. Are there any heroes in this story? Oh, there, there are a few. Again, we've concentrated on a bunch of physicists who, whose job was casting doubt, so we don't spend a lot of time on the, hero, the counter story, the hero story. Uh, but there are scientists who have, been, who have found their careers really threatened and disrupted by this effort. One is uh, Benjamin Santer, who's Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Ben did uh, one of the foundational bits of work that proved the current warming is really anthropogenic in nature. It's a field of study called detection and attribution. Kind of the shorthand is fingerprinting. Um, If you think about it, uh, the, the way police figure out who did something, you look at the pattern of a fingerprint. Well, what he did was look at the pattern of warming in the real world through observational data, the pattern of warming that climate models said would happen, and did a statistical comparison to see if they were really similar enough to be able to declare with high confidence that, yes, it really was anthropogenic warming. And that work is finished and published in 1995 and 1996 and brought him under attack by our Marshall Institute folks um, who accused him of essentially a fraud in the Wall Street Journal caused a number of investigations and so forth. Um, and that, those people, to me, are the kinds of heroes of the story, the people who have come under attack and 
you know, lived through it and then kept doing the work anyway. I just saw Ben a couple of days ago, and he's, he's very happy. He's sort of been being left alone the last few months, and he's happy to be back, in, back at his desk doing science again. And how about the villains? Oh, our villains. I don't like to use the term because I actually don't think most of them are, are bad people. They had all done good, if not great, things in their productive scientific career. You know, Bill Nirenberg was the director of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography for many years. He built their climate research program. Um, and then he gets involved with the Marshall Institute after he retires. And you can really kind of see this right-wing version of groupthink set in, and they get become, as they only talk to each other, they become more and more extreme during the 1990s. Um, I actually, that didn't, when I found that in his papers, I found it by accident, it didn't make me mad. It depressed me. Because you could see it happen. When, you, when you're a historian, you see you know, 15 years of somebody's life compressed into a day or two in their papers. It's really kind of disturbing to see someone go off the rails that way. But I, so I don't like to use that term, but our, our cast of characters of our, our Fred Singer, um, who's, the one, who's the one who's still alive, Frederick Seitz, Bill Nirenberg, um, and Robert Jastrow. Did you interview any of these people on either side? Or? Uh, n- not really. Um, for one thing, three of our four key d- characters on the denier side are dead. Only Singer is around. Uh, we didn't interview him because he's been so prolific. He's got so many hundreds of op-eds and letters to the editors, um, papers online in various places, that we knew what he thought um, and since you, you also have to sort of be fair, right, if we can't interview the dead ones, what's the point of interviewing the live one? On the hero side, I interviewed Ben Santer, but I was interested in that fingerprinting technique. It's really arcane. If you try to read those papers um, without really advanced maths, you go, huh? And I want him to explain how it worked, because I, I as an author, have to explain how it works. And that's why I interviewed him. I didn't interview him much about the, the attacks on him, because, again, that's, that's a matter of the public record. It's in all the newspapers and so forth. Um, so we didn't rely heavily on interviews in the book. We relied heavily on documents, um, not just newspaper reporting, because Bill Nirenberg died and left his papers to scripts. His papers were really... One of the keys, his papers, the National Academy of Sciences papers, and a few other sets of, of personal um, or institutional papers are the basis of our argument. And you mentioned the complexity of, of, of the, these issues and techniques are very complex. Uh, Steve Schneider, Stanford climatologist, has been here before talking about how uh, mainstream news media is ill-suited to handle the complexity. Here we are talking for a whole hour. A lot of things that happen on the news are 15 seconds or, or mm-hmm. less. Uh, so talk about the media and, and its relationship to science. Oh, boy. Um, I kind of I don't like this subject much because I don't want to bash the media. They're going into so, so much trouble, especially science reporting is just being whacked everywhere. Um, but journalists are driven by this problem of, of space, of timeliness, and it makes it extremely difficult for them to report accurately on any subject, let alone complicated ones. And as I said, some of the science is really arcane. Um, but where they've really fallen down is that a lot of it isn't. Our knowledge of greenhouse gases goes back into the middle of the 19th century. It, wasn't, it was difficult for them then, but now it's so extremely well established that it amazes us when we see reporters questioning anyone, or rather questioning it in either op-ed pieces or bringing in scientists who question it because you can't be a trained and reputable physicist anymore and not get the basic radiative transfer nature of what... CO2 and water vapor and so on do. We depend on the way your weather reports come. You, you probably mostly don't know this. We have instruments and satellites that measure the emissions of carbon dioxide molecules in the atmosphere directly. They measure the emissions of those molecules. They tr- use equations to transfer those radiance values, they call them, into temperatures, and those temperatures get fit into the forecast models on the ground to determine what, to, to tell you what the weather will be over the next few days. Well, that only works because CO2 is a greenhouse gas and thus emits in the infrared. We know that. That's not a question. We use it as a technique all the time, and yet it's extremely difficult to get that in through reporting. Um, Our biggest beef, though, in the book is we talk about this problem of balance. American reporters especially seem to think that they always have to balance a scientist with the other side. 
um, which has almost universally been someone from one of these think tanks in Washington. Uh, we think that journalists should, if you have to have another side, you ask another scientist who's actually doing the research and not somebody from the American Enterprise Institute or the Heritage Foundation or so on, because those folks don't do research. They're not immersed in laboratories and journal publishing and so forth. They were hired at establishments whose job is to promote a particular set of economic beliefs, not to do earth science. This is not particularly new. One of the uh, parts I like, liked in the book was a part about Edward Murrow, who we remember famously waving his cigarette, uh, falling for, for something on tobacco. And I think it was Murrow who said, we don't need to balance Churchill and, Stalin, uh, Churchill and, and Hitler in our reporting. Yeah. Um, so the, the Murrow story was that he, he, at one point, the tobacco industry decides they need to get senior media figures on their side, telling their story. Um, so they are able to convince Murrow and his producers to tell their side, uh, which, of course, was the idea of casting doubt on the linkage between smoking and cancer. Um, and that's, that's another way of looking at this problem of false balance in science reporting. Um, in a science, at the cutting edge of a field, there are often many theories, many sides to the question. But eventually you have enough evidence that all of the other alternates collapse, and you just have one. Well, with greenhouse gases, that was done by the end of the 19th century. We knew that already. And then it just becomes a matter of, well, what are the consequences? Can you measure them? Uh, how severe will they be? Those are much mushier questions. But over the last century, we've drawn a lot of conclusions about that. We've seen a lot of changes actually happening in, in a timescale that's rapid. Uh, previous generations of scientists, sci scientists would have been astonished at how fast the change is actually happening, the temperature change, the precipitation changes, and so on. Because they used to hold a worldview that the Earth was, could only change very slowly, if at all. And what's happened in the last half century, not just the last 30 years, but longer than that, is realization that, in fact, the Earth system is very dynamic and it can change quickly. We can measure it on human timescales in changes of even a few years. And that would have astonished a scientist trained in 1910, 1920, because they were fixed into this very idea of a very slow-to-change world. Eric Conway is a Caltech historian and co-author of Merchants of Doubt. We're discussing the history of climate science at, at Climate One. Uh, should scientists do a better job at being communicators? I've heard people say that scientists often bury their lead and they, they, they start with things that they're doubt and what they don't know and they put the what journalists would call their nut graph way down below. Should they do a better job communicating? Uh, so we need scientists who are better communicators, that's for sure. Um, what you're quite right. Scientists tend to start out with a discussion of uncertainty, which is exactly the wrong thing to do um, if you're talking to a reporter. You, you want to front what you know and then talk about all of the things about that thing that you don't know. Um, they're also terrible at, at you know, charts and graphology. Uh, they love to show these kinds of things, and I actually like them too. I'm, 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 I'm guilty of that myself. But they often design them in ways that are utterly unintuitive to normal people. Um, and when they show those to reporters, they just confuse things even further. Um, and, uh, and, and lastly, they, uh, because scientists, and this is a drawback of the way scientists are trained now. It's a matter of professionalization. Scientists are trained to be specialists in such narrow ways, they often can't answer um, big sorts of picture public questions. Uh, we have open house at, at where I work my, for my day job at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory every year. And every year I get the same people asking me the same sort of basic questions. How do we know global warming is not caused by the sun? How do we know it's not just the ice ages? Um, and most of, a lot of our scientists can't answer those questions because they're specialized in one little piece of the puzzle. Um, and these old questions that were resolved 40 years ago are simply no longer even on their radar. But that's what the public needs to know because they still haven't gotten that information. So there's also an issue of public communication, just training scientists to be able to answer the big picture questions, which also is just a matter of education. They're not hard questions for a modern scientist, but they just have to put in the effort to know them. 
Let's uh, start. go to audience questions in just a minute. So if you'd like to ask a question, please uh, come up to the microphone. Don't be shy. That's uh, <laughs> not the best part of the program. Um, I want to ask you about environmentalists. Uh, we haven't talked much about them. Do they exaggerate some of the science? Do they, you know, what's the term about sort of the, the cute and cuddly little animals that they put on yeah. their uh, direct mail campaigns? Does that distort science or at least exaggerate some of the science? Uh, yes, many of the groups do exaggerate the science. I, 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 one way I like to put it is, in America, if you're not screaming apocalypse from the rooftops, nobody's paying any attention to you. And I, think, I happen to think that's a mistake. The way, I want, the way I present climate change is uh, two things. It's a problem, but it's a manageable one, and it gives us opportunities to improve some things. The, as we know from the oil spill, the mining accidents lately, the energy we use now has a lot, does a lot of damage, a lot of effects, and we have an opportunity to fix some of those things by switching to other sources that are less dirty. So presenting it as a scary story, I think, is, is really a mistake. But yes, environmentalists do do that. But understand that in our book, we concentrated on scientists um, on all sides. We didn't get into the environmental organizations or really even their opposites because we wanted to understand the role of scientists in all this. That's, the, that's two weeks when we have the, uh, the climate war. Yes, question. <laughs> all right, thanks. Uh, my name is Matt LePay. I'm with uh, Alliance for Climate Education. Um, <clears throat> I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about uh, the public opinion polls that we're seeing. Um, they tend to paint pictures that are vastly different, and mm-hmm. there are a lot of them coming out. So if you could talk a little bit about what we're seeing with these public opinion polls and maybe your perspective on where public opinion is going. Uh, Public opinion polling. Um, Of course, you can determine the outcome of a poll by the way you phrase a question, which is always a problem because there are are partisan polling companies. Uh, I don't know what to do about that problem. Where is public opinion going? Well, one of the things that I find interesting in the history, studying the history of climate um, understanding is that people's belief in global warming goes down when it's cold and up when it's hot. So there's this, this, and to show you how dramatic this can be, the first big congressional hearings on global warming were held in 1987. They got zero media attention. They were completely ignored. There's then a drought that sets in at the end of the year. In the middle of 1988, it's a really bad drought, and there's crop failures going on all over the place. So Congress holds exactly the same hearings with the same cast of characters, and the media was all over it. So that's people, people, and unfortunately there are scientists too who confuse weather and climate. They're not the same things. But the reality is because people live in the weather, that's what they experience every day. That's one of the things that tends to drive coverage. Um, and unfortunately you see because North America had a cold winter this year. The rest of the world didn't, but North America did. You saw a decline in the number of people who accept the reality of global warming. And I think it's just because it was bloody cold last year. And that's unfortunate, but that is the way people are. How do you fix that as a climate educator? I guess part of what you have to do is, is get people to understand what climate change is, is as Jim Hansen put it, a loading of the dice. You will get more extreme weather. Um, you will see larger ups and downs of temperature. Kevin Trenberth does a lot of work on that subject. But you can't. You have to get people thinking that you know one cold winter doesn't make doesn't disprove a long term climate change. So is that the difference between climate and weather? Climate is long term. Yeah. Weather is today. Climate is decades. Yeah. Well, uh, even that gets more complicated because there are people who are interested in interannual climate change. Interannual climate change is things like El Nino, um, which is semi-regular. They used to think it happened like every seven years, and that's not really true. They've discovered that it's not really true. So that's known as an interannual climate phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Um, And so scientists have divided this up into periods that they're interested in. Um, The global warming people, the people focused on longer-term temperature change, 
basically figure data on less than 20 year, a data run less than 20 years long is almost useless to them because you can't get enough statistical significance out of it. So they tend to talk in 30, 40, 50 year periods. Which is why they dismissed the flattening of the recent uh, lack of, of warming in the last seven or 10 years, right? Because it's not enough, well, it, long enough period of time. It's, well, A, it's not a long enough period of time, but I, wanna say they, they, I don't want to say they dismiss it because they don't. It's just that- They can't explain it. Well, they actually can. Sure they can. They're, they're, it's an overdetermined question at this point. Um, we know that the Earth system has a great deal of internal variability. So you can look back in the record of the last 150 years, and you will see periods in the long-term warming trend, warming trend in which it plateaued and then it went, started going again. Well, why does it do that? Well, mostly that's the oceans. There are oscillations that go on in the oceans that we really don't understand, but there's enormous amounts of heat in the oceans, far more than there is in the atmosphere. So all it takes is a minor rearrangement of an ocean current to cause that kind of thing to happen. Um, and by the way, the climate models show this. The reason you tend not to see them, and this is again a public communication of science issue, what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change does to produce their projections is they take dozens of runs by about 19 climate models and they average them all together. And that average smooths out all the internal variation. But if you look at just one run of one climate model, they always actually have a pattern that looks like this. It's rising over the long term, but it has all this internal variation. Mm -hmm. But they don't publish that chart. Next question. Uh, hi, my, <clears throat> excuse me. my name's Carter Brooks. I'm an artist uh, focused on how we understand climate change. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in this uh, political motivation behind uh, mm -hmm. scientists and um, uh, also the fact that you know, cl climate change, global warming is, is really at this point you know, an abstract metaphor for most people. It's a, it's a social metaphor. Yes. It doesn't really mean the science anymore. Um, and you mentioned Michael Crichton earlier, and, and so I want to have a question around his example because I went and saw him speak, and the aha moment for me was the moment everyone got up and cheered in the room was when he was saying, and government will not control our lives. And I realized he's having a conversation about government. He's not having a conversation about science. So if the scientists come at him with the, you know, attacking his, how is science wrong, it's going to go right over his head, down his back, and be gone. Right? You can't even have the conversation because his conversation is about government. So how do we address that problem, that we can't deal with the science because the conversation that the people are having around the denial isn't about science at all? So it's a framing issue or, yeah. Yeah, um, you, you are absolutely right. You have nailed a, a big chunk of our argument that really this is about opposition to government regulation. Um, I guess the way I try to get across to people when I talk about science at Open House and other sorts of things is you have to be able to separate the way the world is from the question of what to do about it. We can accept global warming is real, it, that it's really happening, it's really driven by people, that it's really going to have consequences and say, you know what, let's just not deal with it. You can. In a democratic polity, you can make that argument. Um, you can decide that, well, instead of basing policy on science, we're gonna, make it, we're gonna base it on religious beliefs. You can decide in a democratic policy, polity, rather, that you can base your policy on Disney movies. Let's run the world according to the mermaid. Um, so you can do that, but I, I, what I want to emphasize is there's a separation between the way the world is, that's what natural science is supposed to tell us, and the question of what to do about it. But you're absolutely right. Most people don't quite get that. And unfortunately, actually, a lot of scientists don't get that too. There's what we in science and technology studies call the linear model of the science to technology society interaction, that once the science is known, the policy and the technology becomes obvious. It just sort of comes automatically. And that's just wrong. It shouldn't be that way for one thing, since that would make us a dictatorship of science. And I don't want that. At the same time, they said we, we need to make sure we preserve that distinction between the way the world is and what we should do about it. And there's another thing that, communi that public communication of science is not doing is, is making that clear too. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm David Schoenbrunn with Transdef. We, we work uh, primarily on climate change. I'd like you to talk about the techniques of the scientific deniers. Um, is it about cherry-picking data? Is it about out-and-out -out lying? Uh, say more in detail about exactly what it is that they do. Thank you. Um, it's actually very kind of difficult. They're quite good at this, so it's difficult to catch them in a lie. 
And one of the things that tobacco companies put together was this thing they called the Bad Science Resource Book. And one of the things it says is, don't lie. You don't have to. Um, is it cherry-picking of data? Yes. It's looking at short-term trends and making an argument from that, for example, the cooling that's alleged to have happened since, uh, was it 1998, I guess, which was the big peak El Nino year. Um, often it's shifts in emphasis. You can do a whole lot with that to, to misrepresent what someone said. What you often see is what Michael Crichton did. He, um, in his the appendix to State of Fear, he he listed a tremendous number of footnotes in which he in which he's supposed to have based his science essay on, but if you actually read the things he cited, you'll find that they said a much different thing than he claimed that they did. And so you really have to back-check a lot of this stuff. Um, I actually argue that that, in order to tell a lie, you have to know what what the truth is. So that's not quite lying, because I think Michael Crichton, I think Bill Nirenberg and Fred Seitz and Fred Singer were true believers in their causes, and they could no longer read what papers said, so they wind up misrepresenting them. But I, I question whether it was deliberate, because when, you're, when you believe strongly enough in something, you will tend to read out, you will tend to ignore uh, all of the evidence of the things that you don't want to believe in. Um, and that's a whole other problem. But yes, you're, you're quite right. They use all the tactics of modern public relations. They're extremely good at it. They use focus groups to figure out what kind of message um, will resonate most clearly. And that actually is one of the ways they come up with this argument that, well, global warming is really about freedom. It's really about imposing socialism. And that if we, if, we, if we tackle global warming, what we're going to wind up doing is imposing worldwide communism. I mean, you see these kinds of arguments, but they make them because they work, precisely because lots of people can be convinced of that. Um, and it's also why, by the way, why they've been much more successful with this in the United States than they have been anywhere else. Because the Cold War was a much stronger thing for us than it was nearly everywhere else. Well, I'll add one thing there. We talked earlier about there's a current exhibition at the Smithsonian, which gets to the point of, of emphasis and, and selection. It's, it basically makes the point that humans have adapted over uh, thousands of years and, and migrated to a changing climate. And uh, the subtext is we've adapted before, we can adapt again. Uh, and only in one little corner alcove of this big, fancy, multi-million dollar exhibit at the Smithsonian do they have the anthropogenic, human-caused consequences mm-hmm. of, of, of climate change and sort of the... It's there, but it's de-emphasized, it, it's marginalized. Yeah. And uh, yes, sir. Next question. Hi, my name is Devin McDougall, and I'm a legal intern at the Center for Biological Diversity. I was interested in your remarks. You're talking about the sort of paradoxical situation where scientists... With, with the least empirical support for their theories were disproportionately effective at, at communicating. And it seems like there was a sort of infrastructure that they offered them opportunities and support and abilities to do this. And um, as someone working for an environmental organization this summer, I'm interested in your advice for how people on the environmental end that support these types of regulations can work better with scientists and offer them the types of opportunities that some of the more prominent than I are opportunities. Uh, scientists have, have seized. I think what you have to do is identify scientists who are who are willing to do that kind of thing. A lot of them won't, partly because they see themselves as you know they they devoted their work to lives to working in laboratories and so forth, um, and not to public policy and so on. Many of them see public policy as kind of a contaminant. Um, they or, or they don't want to have happen to them what happened to Ben Santer. That's a big problem too. They, we, we've, we've talked to a number. We have talked to a number of scientists informally, not for the book, but for other reasons, because we go to science conferences and so on. And we actually know they're gun shy. They don't want to become known as outspoken on climate issues because of precisely what happened to people like Ben Santer and so on. Uh, ben Santer and uh, so there's been a Michael chilling Mann effect and so on. Oh yes, there's been a chilling effect. No question about that. Um, but I said your hardest work, I think, will actually be finding scientists who are willing to do that kind of thing. Um, and then it'll have to be a dialogue between you because, as I said, that one, many scientists will think that the environmental organizations do exaggerate and they will try to push back against it. That's probably a good thing. But uh, I hope you can help at least some scientists figure out how to do better in communicating because they're not doing very well. There's, there's a recent Wired article that what, science, what climate science needs is, is a good PR firm. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. 
Next question. Hi, my name is Gretchen Weber. I'm with KQED's Climate Watch program. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about the situation now. It, it seems like you said three of the founders kind of of this campaign have died and mm -hmm. that people aren't necessarily listening to the Heartland Institute anymore. But the, information, the misinformation campaign seems to be alive and well. So is there a new generation of these respected scientists who are following in footsteps? Or who are these people now? Um, there is a second generation, but not nearly as respected. Because this think tank network now exists and has been institutionalized and self-perpetuating, they simply hire their own people um, who, who have some credentials anyway, rarely actually climate scientists, um, who continue to do that kind of thing. But they're not, they don't have anything like the stature that Nirenberg did, that, that, that Fred Seitz had. Uh, Fred Seitz was the president of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, none of the modern folks have, the later presidents have gone to work for tobacco or for the American Enterprise Institute and so on. So they don't have the stature. But yes, there is definitely a, a second generation and there's a third generation. Um, one of the interesting transitions of the last few years has actually been um, the creation of these, uh, has been the rise of bloggers, of course, um, some of which have become incredibly influential. And there's yet another front in this 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 conflict um, that really is uncontrollable because you know they they basically are working for free. They're very active, very effective. They get millions and millions of people visiting their sites. And how do you fight that? Talk to Eric after. You can press him for some specific names for your your story. Maybe uh, next question, please. Yeah, I, I was a um, columnist at one of the major newspapers in the South, if there are already major newspapers in the South. And um, there, what you guys were saying about the media is totally true. As, even as a political columnist, they wanted me to put both sides of the story in. And when George Bush was elected, they said, no one go out of your way to criticize him. And I'm like, I worked my life to get to this job, and you're telling me not to criticize a politician. Um, <laughs> And, but what I saw was the media people, I had a Bachelor of Science degree and switched into journalism after doing you know, business. And these people who were journalists did not know anything about science. They were told to get both sides. They would go to the Heritage Foundation. And so you get total spin. Mm -hmm. And the, the politics was covered the same way because in this community, business ran it. And they did not want to upset business, and they didn't want their circulation to go down, and they were afraid of being attacked on right-wing radio yeah. for what they would say. And so this... Do you have a question? Yeah. Was, the whole thing is, how does the spinning of, like, ExxonMobil's commercials, how does that affect the public, and then how does it affect the media when they see that? Well, I think everyone processes information according to their their pre-existing beliefs, and that includes science information and so on. Um, so that's and that's what makes this false balance so effective. People, you know, I heck, do I really want to believe I have to pay higher energy prices to fix this global warming problem? Well, I'd kind of rather not. Um, it's a matter of ethical responsibility that I say, well, yes, I'm going to have to. But because people process information that way, I think those, those, those ads are very effective. And that's, that's why, again, the, the balance issue has been so successful and so pernicious to climate science because people generally want to be left alone to do their own thing and you know, having to pay a carbon tax or whatever policy measure we actually wind up taking is, um, is, is something that will affect our, our daily lives. So that's, again, in a nutshell, we all process information according to our pre-existing beliefs, and that really influences what we accept. And the whole idea of these think tanks has been really to take advantage of that piece of knowledge, which I think comes out of the PR industry and much longer ago than that. And I, I wish I knew how to solve that problem because I, you know, I'm not a journalist. Naomi and I are are reticent to tell the journalism community how to fix themselves. But that, that one problem is maybe the major reason that the U.S. has gotten so behind the eight ball in its under public understanding of, the, of climate science. And there are places in academia, Harvard, I think Stanford, that, that specifically try to address this problem. They bring in journalists and try to teach them science. 
So some people yeah. are trying to yeah. bridge that gap, but, yeah. but probably a f- small percentage of science, uh, reporters ever get to something like that. Yeah. Next question. Hi, I'm Penelope Whitney with Resource Media here in town, and I actually work with a lot of scientists pretty closely in the nitrogen field, communicating mm-hmm. the global change issues of nitrogen to the media. So there are scientists out there who are willing to, to be relevant to policy. But um, my question has to do with um, the links between attacks on evolutionary science. Did you find any connection there between the growing attacks of evolutionary science in the schools and the work of these, these institutes with the whole sort of science denial campaign? Um, I guess the answer is it didn't used to be, but is now. Uh, our key actors, our physicists, um, so far as we know, we're not anti-evolutionists with one exception. Um, Robert Jastro, who's an astrophysicist, wrote a series of books um, in the late 1970s, one of which uh, comes, skates very, very close to the line of, of creationism, very close to, in fact, the, the form that we now call intel- intelligent design, although that's a more recent term. Um, but the Marshall Institute that he set up never took on anti-evolution. Um, they, they stayed away from that. But what you see from the, but for reasons that, that escape me, other than the fact that it helps undermine science broadly, and as I said, the tobacco companies picked that up as a strategy in the 1990s, undermining science broadly. Uh, the Discovery Institute has picked up denial of global warming. Um, and to what effect, I don't know yet, because it's, they've, they've only done it in the last few years. But the tactics are very much the same. Um, it just happens to be a different cast of characters. And I do think it's, they have some of the same roots, too. There is, um, as, besides the sort of free market belief, a marketplace of religion in that sense, there is the reality that you know, people want to be able to educate their kids the way they want and not the way the state wants. I mean, that's kind of an old, old thread in American history. Uh, public schools came out of New England, the whole idea um, in the early 19th century, and spread only slowly. Um, California actually was one of the states that adopted it early once California existed. The idea of universal publication, education even through universities, which we don't do anymore, but we used to. You're a historian, but let's turn to some things that are closer to today. Uh, You finished your book before the climate emails came out about East Anglia. Mm -hmm. Uh, So were you surprised? Uh, Do you think that there's any legitimacy in in some of the critiques of the science being done in the U.K., climate science? Uh, We were totally unsurprised. Uh, I will say that it was, to to our knowledge, that, and there's a much less well-reported break-in in Canada, too, um, the, the first time there was an actual break into anything in order to cast doubt on climate science. Before that, they've just done it through the media. But we weren't very surprised. You mean um, physical break in, not a cyber attack? Oh, there was a cyber attack at East Anglia. No, but there was actually break in in, in somebody's a climate scientist's office was broken into in Canada. Um, forget his name, so I won't try to come up with it. Um, so the first time there were actually crimes committed, so far as we can tell, anyway. Um, did it cast any doubt in my mind? Well, no, and I tell you, there's a variety of reasons why. Uh, one is a lot of the email that wound up getting quoted out of context in the media was old. It was actually from this period in the mid-1990s when um, Ben Santer is coming under attack. Um, the second reason is that you can compare the East Anglia data set to other data sets. You know, they are not the only producer of a surface temperature record. The Goddard Institute for Space Studies, which is a unit of NASA in New York, produces one. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the United States produces another. And, and you can do a statistical comparison to see if one of them is substantially different than the other, and they're not. The outlier really is the Goddard Institute for Space Studies because GIS includes the Arctic, which is warming the fastest, and East Anglia left it out on the grounds that there just weren't enough reliable stations in the Arctic. So their data set actually shows a less rapid warming trend than than the GIST data set does. So what I tell people is, the way I like to put it is, you can throw out the East Anglia data. You can decide it's junk. But there's so much other data that we still know that we have anthropogenic global warming going on. Um, And... Finally, do I think that there was anything actually wrong with what the East Anglia folks were doing? Um, the answer is no. This is a community that's been under attack, as we detail in the book, for decades, and they acted exactly like people under attack act, defensive and kind of scared and also kind of really mad. Um, and it got them into some trouble 
it made them look bad, but it didn't tell us really anything about the quality of their science or anything else. Because again, that's really determined by checking against other data. And that's kind of work that other scientists can do and have done. It kind of circles back to our other point, though, about the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, should they be more media savvy? Were there any flaws, legitimate flaws in their mm-hmm. transparency or process that came out of this scrutiny? I think Dr. Prachari, mm-hmm. uh, they put in a, what independent review panel that's going to look at their... Look at their processes uh, right. again. Um, let's see. So there, there are three discovered flaws in the working group's two report in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, working group two is the impacts panel, people who are looking at the economics, people looking at the changes to the biosphere, people looking and so on. They're not the panel, actually, that assesses whether global warming is happening or what causes it. That's actually working group one. And there aren't any known or there aren't any discovered errors, let me put it that way. The working group one report, if you've never seen it, is almost a 1,000 pages long. There's got to be an error in there somewhere. If you think about it statistically, if you've got 1,000 pages, if you have a 1% error rate, there's an error how many pages? Every 100 pages? So there's going to be errors in there somewhere. But no one's found them. Uh, as far as transparency goes, you know, actually the IPCC is incredibly transparent. They allow anyone of any qualification to comment on the draft text of their reports. All you have to do is go to a website, enter your email address, say you want to be a reviewer, and they will send you the drafts, and, and you'll allow you to comment, and then they have to respond to your comments. Um, that is, to me both a mind-bogglingly difficult thing to do. It's also, very tra- it's also incredibly transparent. Um, if I were going to criticize the IPCC, when it was first set up in 1988, it was a very small number of people doing it um, and drawn from a subset of the climate science community was mostly modelers. And today, though, it's not. They've actually quite deliberately expanded both the number of people on the IPCC and the range of disciplines they come from um, because they believe that diversity in experience and understanding different parts of the world especially is, is valuable to have, and I think they're right. So they, you know, kudos for them for overcoming what was an early criticism. One of the criticisms of the IPCC is that they do include non-peer-reviewed reports from advocacy organizations. Is that the right thing to do for a scientific organization? No. <laughs> they also include what's known as gray literature which they can't quite rule out. Uh, and the reason simply is that for a lot of the climate model stuff is so complicated that it, you actually can't publish it in a journal. Um, There's just not enough pages. So a lot of that sort of background stuff goes in what's known as the gray literature, and their rule is that it has to be deposited someplace public so it can all be seen by all the other reviewers. But I do think it's a mistake for them to allow stuff from advocacy organizations to be there, um, unless it's been pretty darn thoroughly vetted in and of itself um, through some other sort of process of peer review. But I do think that was a mistake of theirs. And they've defended that and said that, well, there's lots of these environmental organizations are doing good work. They have lots of expertise. They're in places around Mm -hmm. the world. Nothing wrong with this. But you think they should... uh raise the bar or change the, the well, bar on Well, at least raise the bar because, as I said, it, it, it needs to be, that material needs to be better vetted if it's to be used. So they may wind up having to uh, somehow implement some other review, pre-review process for, for that kind of material. Uh, but we'll see. There is a review, a process review going on right now. I think the comment period is still open, um, and we'll see what they decide. You were in the U.S. Navy, and uh, the oil disaster uh, is very much in the news right now, and science is coming into play. Uh, you know, are there plumes? Are there no plumes? The, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is, is involved in there. So how do you see science playing out in the discussion of the impact of the oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico? Well, I think it's playing out the way it generally does. The outside scientists are, are taking it as their job to hold both the federal authorities and the corporate authorities to account, as they they do seem to have um, misinformed themselves about the, the ability of oil to stay suspended in water columns. I don't actually quite know how they've done that. There, we've had yeah, this is BP has said, oh, before. oil will float to the top. It yeah, won't. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> Would that it were that simple, but it's not. Especially when you start spraying these dispersants, because the entire point of the dispersants is is to disperse and submerge it. So it should have stood to reason that they would be found suspended in the water column. Um, And then there's the reality of mixing, too. One of the 
if, I don't know if you ever did this experiment as a kid, right? You mix oil and water and you shake it up. Well, they stay mixed as long as you're swirling it around. It's only when you stop swirling it and put it down they separate. Well, the oceans are always being mixed. They're always being spun over by the wind. That's one of the things the wind does. So you should expect to see that ocean circulation causes these, these sort of plumes in the subsurface um, ocean that stay around a while because that mixing action keeps doing that kind of thing. So I think it's actually working out exactly the way I would expect it to. The science has outside scientists are saying, hey, wait a minute, we don't believe you. And they're deploying their resources from NOAA or wherever else it is they get them to find out what's being hidden. I think it's doing exact, scientists are doing exactly what they should be doing. You mentioned earlier that sort of some disconnect between the time cycles. News moves very fast. Yeah. Science moves very slow. Uh, we're, I mean, this is a, a slowly uh, unfolding crisis. It's not something like Alexander Valdez was, was one day. Mm-hmm. Um, but how, how does science address the, the time needs of a media where things, people need answers more quickly? That's actually a fundam- really fundamental problem with climate change as a story. It's because it's so darn slow. How do you, how do you, can, how do you tell a good story about it? Um, I was just at this forum uh, that Marketplace Radio sponsored, a couple, um, and it was one of the questions, actually, and personal stories was the way to look at it. Changes are now visible enough in lots of the United States that people are seeing it, uh, maple farmers are seeing it. We're seeing it in forestry. Um, it's been visible in Alaska, actually, for decades. There, there was reporting about that um, around Hansen's hearings in 1987 and 1988 that the oil industry itself was finding the foundations of their buildings and their pipelines and so forth being undermined by warming. So those kinds of stories, things that are visible, are ways to go about helping to tell that story. But of course, yes, it is a huge problem that global warming occurs on such a it's a fast time scale for the world. That's the problem. If it were a slow process, um, it would not even be a problem for us because we'd simply adapt everything to it. So it's occurring very quite quickly on a human time, on a geologic time scale, but on a human time scale, it still seems really slow. And it's got to make it really hard for people to report on too. There's just no, there's not going to be, you know, a revelation about climate science that's sort of the sort of thing, aha moment. It's just not that kind of thing. It's a very slow field of study. Which raises, uh, causes some people to question how well humans are adapted to respond to it because it's not immediate, yeah. uh, clear and present danger, immediate right before us. Our thanks to Eric Conway, co-author of Merchants of Doubt, for his comments here today at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Eric. It's been interesting. <laughs>